This podcast is brought to you by BrunerAcademy.com, your online resource for the best public speaking, presentation, storytelling skills courses. Become a rock star communicator in any setting. Visit BrunerAcademy.com. From the small island of Tonga in Polynesia to the NFL gridiron to some of the biggest opera stages in the world, my guest today has truly recreated his life. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Live Your Best Life with Liz Bruner. Tenor Taupupua is a man who believes in living in the moment and never giving up on a dream. Tau, welcome to my podcast. Liz, thank you so much for having me. Great to have you here today. Not too many people would think that playing professional football and singing on an opera stage would have anything in common, but you say, yes, they do. And you found the link. What is that link? Well, the link is the blessing that one gets from above. And so it all starts from that. And it starts from just having the faith and just believing in yourself and believing that others believe in you to become someone wonderful in this world. And, you know, during these times, we just need some kind of goodness and some kind of light. My life journey is to bring light and to recreate anything that is possible that will bring a better good for others. What did you love about the game? Because, I mean, you've got these screaming, cheering people behind you when you were playing in the NFL. Uh, What I loved about the game was the focus that one has, the competition, the noise and just everything about it, the feel of tackling someone, hearing your name over the loudspeakers, the feel of knowing that you're out there and you're playing and, you know, you're making your family proud and your friends proud and you're, you know, where I come from, your island. You first heard opera music when one of your brothers played his opera records, but you wanted no part of it. (laughs) Why did you hate it so much? Because I grew up, you know, with R&B and hip hop and, you know, a lot of that kind of music. So when my brother took this class in high school, it was about classical music. So he would come home and he would play a lot of Pavarotti and a lot of Domingo. And so I would listen to it and I'm like, what are you listening to? There's no drum beats or there's no guitar in there. And then I thought, you know, you can't even understand what they're saying. I just didn't get it. So I would blast my music in the other room and he would blast the opera in the other room. And so it would be like a competition. When did you go from hating opera to actually loving it? When I was a senior in high school, I was in a choir and a teacher heard me sing and she said, I'm going to enter you into this competition. I'm like, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to. So she gave me this Italian song and I learned it. And I remember keeping it a secret from my teammates and the football coach. I didn't want anyone to know that I was singing in the choir because, you know, those two just don't really go hand in hand. You know, like you have this football player, captain also sings in a choir. I kept it a secret, but one day in the weight room, I left the score at the side of the bench where I was benching and he saw it and he goes, what is this? Is this yours? He was trying to make fun of it. And I said, so what? You know, just, it's mine, so so what? The secret was out of the bag at that point. I entered this competition, and I think that's when the bug bit me. Yeah. 
Now, I read somewhere that I know you're the youngest of nine kids. And one of the reasons that you went into the school choir was because you got new clothes instead of the hand-me-downs. Is that correct? Well, yes, it is correct. But I, because my brother, the one that, you know, got me into classical music, every year my parents would buy him new slacks and white shirt. And so I was like, I want, I want that. And so I joined the Glee Club, what they called it back then, but no such luck. I got my brother's clothes, so I got the hand-me-downs. <laughs> you still got the hand-me-downs. You, I, yes. you couldn't get away from that. Yeah. All right, I'm going to take you back to your childhood. You're growing up in Tonga, and many people you know, think that's paradise. And as I shared with you, I grew up in Hawaii, and everybody thinks, oh, that's paradise. And we moved to the mainland, as we called it, when I was 10 years old. <laughs> we moved at five years old to Utah. I mean, I think we both experienced culture shock when those things happen. Why Utah? Why Utah? That's, you know. Do you even know why? <laughs> I do. It's because my mom's side of family, they were, they're Mormons, but my dad refused to be Mormon. And so we moved to Utah because of my mom's side of family. And when we first moved to Utah, you know, we didn't know anyone. So we lived with my grandparents, my mom's parents, in this two bedroom house, a small little house with a basement. But when we arrived at the house, my mom's brother and his wife and six kids were living in the basement. All of us kids, we lived upstairs with our grandparents and my uncle and his wife and kids lived downstairs. I think it was only a couple months later that we moved out of the house into my mom's sister's home and she had three kids and we all grew up there and then my dad finally came from Hawaii where he was working to Utah and uh, stayed with us and a year later we got our own home. Wow unbelievable. So Island Boys I know this for a fact they, that you grow big and strong yes. <laughs> in, in, in the islands whether it's Tonga yeah. or whether it's Hawaii. And you even say that you know when you were 10 years old you looked like a 15 year old I could say the same thing about my brothers too. You were recruited to play football by a neighbor, but you really didn't even know much about the game, let alone the NFL. Talk me through that experience. Well, we were pretty new, you know, living in Utah when it wasn't a neighbor. It was just a random person. So this guy comes over to the elementary. I mean, 2021, I mean, you know, you can't have a stranger just walking onto a playground and start talking to kids, right? This guy showed up to the elementary and was asking around, like, who's the biggest kid here? You know, who's the fastest and who's the strongest kid? So all these kids will point over to me and my cousin and says, them too, you know? And so he came over and started talking to us, wanted to know if we wanted to play football. We didn't know what football was. We took him to our home. So he followed us home and um, talked to our parents. Wow. That's how it all started. So then you go to Webster State University in Utah, you get a full scholarship to play football, but you're also pursuing a Bachelor of Music degree. And then you get drafted by someone we in New England know quite well, Coach Bill Belichick, who was at the time the head coach of the Cleveland Browns. What did that mean to you to be drafted to the NFL? Life-changing because, you know, growing up in Utah, it was hard. My parents didn't speak English. We had, you know, no connection to 
anything. So everybody had to work really hard to make a living and everything. So when I got drafted, I didn't even know I got drafted. I remember it was on a Sunday. The draft picks were going on. And my parents said for me to drive them to church. But when I got back home, my brother-in-law was outside waiting for me to tell me the news that I, you know, that the Cleveland Browns have called that they have drafted me. I didn't know if he was joking or what, but 10 minutes later, they called the Cleveland Browns, the organization and say, congratulations that we have drafted you. And I was overwhelmed by that. I knew that I could do something good. And that's what I did. I helped out my family and, and it was just incredible. Well, I know your number is 92 because I can see it over your shoulder right now. (laughs) And a lot of players try to find that zone on game day. What was your ritual? How did you get into the zone? You would just put on some headphones. And for me, I would listen to things that would inspire me. Sometimes it would be back then rock and roll, or sometimes it would be like Luciano Pavarotti. And what you would do is you would listen to whatever music one listens to, and you close your eyes and you just drift off into this land of success. How am I going to sack this quarterback? How am I going to make this tackle? Or do I remember my plays? How am I going to do this? How am I going to do this on the field and everything? That's how I prepared and make sure that I had enough carbs to fuel me because when I was playing, I was 290 pounds. And so I would eat a lot of pasta and just a lot of stuff that would give me a lot of fuel. Yeah, I would just make sure that everything was in line for me to have a successful game. Well, I have to ask, did you ever sing opera in the locker room? (laughs) Uh, No, no. But I remember a lot of times the media will come into the locker room and they would ask me to sing something like Oh Sole Mio. And I would say, no, 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 because I was, I was embarrassed. I, I don't know why I was embarrassed, but now since I'm grown up, I would not be embarrassed. You know, the older Tao now would say, sure, you know, and sing something. But then I was like, uh, you wanted to keep that quiet. <laughs> I, wasn't going I, I was like, uh, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> You become this outstanding defensive lineman and you really, as you said a moment ago, probably felt so lucky to be in the NFL because you were able to help your family and it's a rare opportunity. Not many people get that opportunity. Sadly, the career gets cut short. In a practice session, not even a game, you get injured. What happened? Yeah, I remember it so well. Uh, It was during practice. I was going against the tackle. Zeus was his name and he was like six, seven, 360. That's a big boy. (laughs) And so I was going against him and I remember hitting him and standing him up. Then I felt the tight end coming down on me and Zeus just came down on my foot and just crushed it. And so the arch of my foot just collapsed. But I remember holding him, but I couldn't do anything. And I, I just remember, I remember what was flashing through my mind was like, oh no. This can't be it, you know, because to play in the NFL, it's like a prize horse. And if one of your prize horse, if it gets injured, what do they do with those prize horse? They sort of either put them away or they just send them out. And I mean, my agent said, what what do you want to do? Do you want to stay here and let them rehab you? Or do you want to go back to Utah and rehab there? He decided, which was a big mistake. I should not listen to it. 
that um, maybe I should just do the settlement, go back to Utah and do my rehab there. Wow. Did you feel, I mean, you did you knew at that point your NFL career was over, I would imagine. No, because I still had a lot of agents, uh, different agents, and I still, um, Bill Belichick was still talking to me because he said, what are they going to do with you now? Because what's so great about Bill Belichick is if you're one of his guys, if he, you know, if drafted you and if he believes in you he's gonna stand behind you and I said well I'm gonna go to Utah and rehab and he goes okay you do that and we'll look at you in a year to bring you in things just didn't work out the way it's supposed to work out I didn't know what to do I didn't know what to fall back on because my whole focus since I was nine ten years old was tackling people playing football I I remember in in high school what my uh, music teacher said you really have a talent here. You should do something about it. And so I decided to do something about it. And that truly is a pivotal moment because you start asking yourself these very important questions. You pack up your belongings, you move to New York City, and you use some of what you learned in the NFL about having a game plan. What was your game plan about music, singing, and moving to New York City? Yeah, so my game plan was this. I'm going to move to New York. I am going to find a place to stay, then I am going to find a voice teacher to help me achieve my goal. And I remember uh, moving to New York, I got so bored my first two months. I didn't know anyone. You know, how do you get a voice teacher? How do you become an opera singer? I was walking past the Metropolitan Opera one day and the Juilliard School. I saw a row of restaurants and I thought to myself, I'm going to go into this one restaurant. I'm going to ask them if they're hiring because I need to meet people. And so I walked in and they saw me, I was big still. And they, and I said, hey, uh, I'd like to work here. And they said, well, do you have any skills in waiting? And I'm like, I don't wanna be a waiter. I said, I just like to be like a, a host or someone, you know, just seat people at the table or something. Because my plan was, if I get this job across the street from the Met and Juilliard, I know these great people, great singers, conductors, directors, I know that they're going to come in and eat. And my game plan was, when these people come in, I'm going to study them. I'm going to study them. What do they eat? Because we all know that certain food gives people phlegm, and it's bad to always clear your throat if you're a singer. And alcohol. Do they drink alcohol? Because we know that alcohol dries out the vocal cords. And restaurants in New York City tend to be very noisy, loud. How do they use their voice? Do they whisper? Do they talk over, try to talk over people or what? So they hired me. And I remember my first week, in comes Domingo. In comes these great singers. In comes these directors and, and everything. So I started studying them. Amazing. Some kids would come in from Juilliard. And then I would ask them, who are they studying with? And they, they, they would tell me. And then it would build up from that. Yeah. Perhaps the next big pivotal moment comes when you stand in line for an hour just to meet the legendary opera singer Kiri Takanawa, which happens to be one of my favorite sopranos, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) And she was having a book signing at the Met Opera Store and you connect with her on this really amazing level. She literally takes you under her wing and that moment transformed your life. It sure did. My dad said, once you get to New York, try to find that Maori lady. Kiri, and go up to Kiri and say, Kiri, 
I'm Polynesian, I'm Tongan and you're Maori, you're from New Zealand. You know, you have to help me because we're Polynesians. And I said, dad, the world doesn't work that way. You know, you can't just <laughs> walk up to someone and say, hey, we're like the same race, you gotta help me or something. But I remember my dad saying that and fast forward to six years later, five years later, when I moved to New York, I go in to watch a dress rehearsal at the Met. And at the bookstore, they had a huge poster that's Dame Kiri Takano will be signing autographs. And I was like, oh, I can't go and see the opera. I have to go and wait in line. So I waited in line for about an hour. And when I approached the table, so Kiri could, you know, write to Tau from Kiri on a CD. Because the line was so long, she wasn't going to do any personal uh, autographs. She was going to just sign. And so when I got up there, she was signing and she looked up and saw me and she sort of sat there and it was like 10 seconds of just looking at me and saying, huh, do you live here? And I said, yes. And she said, what do you do? And I said, I'm an opera singer. It's like, I like, it was like a peacock. I just got up and I was like, I'm an opera singer. And she goes, oh, you do? She goes, where do you study? And I said, nowhere. And I said, I study privately. She goes, how's it going? And I said, ah, it's coming along. It's all right. She goes, it's tough out there, isn't it? It's hard. And I said, yeah, it, it, it is. And she goes, is anyone helping you? And I said, um, no. And she goes, can I help you? It didn't register, Liz. I just stood there and she said, I would like to help you. And I looked at her and I said, okay. And then from then on, she took me under her wings. Amazing. And I'm going to fast forward even more now because that connection, she leads you to Juilliard. You audition against a hundred other hopefuls and you end up being one of three who get accepted and you get another full scholarship ride. You graduate three years later. You must be thinking, holy cow, what's going on with my life right now? What were you thinking? You know, looking back, I was just amazed how quick things were happening. Getting into Juilliard, being one of three that got into this course, full scholarship, and then graduating from Juilliard, you know, being whisked away while I was Juilliard to study in Italy, to learn the language and learn the style of singing, and then graduating from Juilliard and then getting my first opera contract outside of Juilliard to San Francisco Opera. And then things started to go from there. It was just amazing. It was happening so fast that I had to stop and take a breath. So you make this professional debut. That was back in 2011. You embark on this career. It's taken you all across the United States and onto international opera houses to rave reviews, I might add. <laughs> What does it feel like to be performing on one of those stages? Ah, uh, magic. It's just magical. It's, it's like playing football, but one is just grass and turf and the other one is just plywood. And so it's just one of those things because in, in opera, what I've noticed is that everybody wants to be the quarterback. Everybody wants to throw that touchdown pass. In football, it's a family and everybody works together, tackle, everybody works together. In opera, uh, you sort of work together, but everybody wants to be the star. Everybody wants to be the quarterback. 
uh, I remember doing La Boheme. And so I finished the aria KJV La Manina. And I remember standing there and the applause just pouring down on me. It's like, Chao Papua, number 92 on the sack. You know, it was just one of those moments of like, this is awesome. I love it. I mean, the, the ovation. I mean, that's what we live for. We live for to give love out and to receive it. All right, pop quiz time. Favorite opera? My favorite, oh, I can't. Uh, I can't answer that. There's so many good ones. I would say my favorite one is the one that I'm working on. <laughs> All right, favorite aria? Favorite arias? Uh, the aria that I get requested a lot to sing is Nessun Dorma from Puccini's Turadot. And I gladly sing it and I love to sing it. What other genres of music do you listen to? You talked about R&B. Do you still listen to a mix of music? I do. I do. It is the root of my growing up. You know, my brothers would listen to a lot of like Kiss or a lot of Marvin Gaye or a lot of, you know, just different artists. I still listen to it. As you look back over the transition that you made from football to opera, what was the hardest part about that journey? Letting go letting one go, because in order to accept the other one, you have to let it go so your hands could be open to receive the other one. Mm. And that was the hardest. What does singing mean to you today? Is it living your best life? Singing for me is, you know, when everything goes right, it feels like you're in heaven. It really feels like you are a creator of something magnificent. Mm. Because of the pandemic, I imagine you're not on as many stages as you used to be. And hopefully that will change. How much singing are you still doing? And when can we see you again? Do we think that might happen? <laughs> the, la the last time I did a performance was in Hawaii with the Hawaii Symphony, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And that was last year, January. So it's been over a year for a lot of us artists. I try to motivate myself here at home to vocalize, to sing something, but it's really, really difficult because you're not inspired so much, yeah. you know? And it's really hard to get out there. And because for me, I grew up playing football and I knew that there's a game day next week. And so there was always something to look forward to, always something to practice for. And since this pandemic, it literally has shut down everything. So, mm. you know, here at home, I just, you know, I'm like, oh, I need to start vocalizing. But what for, you know? And it's, it's really, really difficult. But I made a promise to myself this month of February that I am gonna get back into shape and start singing and vocalizing and start entertaining my neighbors here in New York, you know, because we all live in apartments <laughs> and start practicing. So, yeah. I can certainly relate to that motivation to sing because I am a classically trained singer and I don't do much singing anymore. And I keep saying to myself, I need to vocalize. I need to get back into the swing of things. And I get that when you don't feel like you have something motivated to sing for or prepare for. Liz, are you a soprano? Yes, I used to be like a lyric soprano, but I think I'm more a mezzo now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the last thing I performed was probably the national anthem. 
I've done the Boston Pops. I've sung for the Patriots, the Celtics, the Red Sox. Wow, awesome. So let me ask you a question. Yes, sir. What does it feel like to sing the national anthem at these games? Scary as hell. (laughs) (laughs) First of all, it's a cappella, and it has a ridiculously crazy range, as you probably know. And when you perform in many of those stadiums or arenas, there is a feedback that comes back at you, the delay that's about two to three seconds. So what my ear is hearing is not what's coming out of my mouth. So it's really, really hard. And talk about having to find the zone to do it. Anytime I'm asked to do it, I'm like, oh my God, you got to give me like six weeks to prepare minimum because I can't get my voice back in shape anytime quicker than that. No, that's true. That's true because as singers, we are like athletes. Yes. If we don't stretch the cords and warm it up every day and everything, it sort of goes to sleep. It's like going to the gym. You don't say if you bench press 300 pounds and you take two or three months off, you can't just go right back and start benching 300 pounds because you could hurt yourself. You have to slowly get back into it. Maybe that 300 pounds will come back in four days, five days, but you slowly get back into it. And people don't know how hard it is to get up there and perform in front of people. You know, it's like going to a party and here in New York, go to a party and they find out that you're an opera singer. They're like, oh my gosh, sing something, sing something. So let's make a promise to each other that we're going to start <laughs> practicing again, okay? Yes. Yes. <laughs> if you're interested in learning more about Tao, you can go to his website and it's taupupua.com and that's spelled T-A-U-P-U-P-U-A.com. T-A-U-P-U-P-U-A.com. Tao, we look forward to hearing you back on the stage soon. And I want to thank you for sharing your story and your passion with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Liz, for having me. And may all of you find your passion and live your best life. Thank you so much for listening today. And until next time, be well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media, helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud and Fast Twitch Media can take you there. Be your best digital self check out fasttwitchmedia.space.